So we are in a sermon series where we are traveling with Jesus uh, as he is in the Gospels, living life and and doing ministry uh, with people. And so what we often see, especially in Luke, it shows us this, that we often see him interact with people around the table. And so that's kind of been the theme that we've looked at each and every week. And we're supposed to ask ourselves, when we hear those stories, when we read them, we're supposed to ask ourselves, what's he teaching us? I mean, what what do the people around the table learn so that we can draw from them and we can draw from Jesus? And so we've been looking at, uh, if you have been with us for the whole series, we looked at the Pharisee and how the sinful woman interrupts. And you can learn from both the sinful woman and from the Pharisee. We saw Mary and Martha, and we can put ourselves in both of their positions. Uh, Last week, we looked at the dinner with the Pharisee and how we're invited to the feast. Uh, and we can look at how we make uh, excuses. Um, we see all of these when he feeds the multitude. And what do we, what do we learn uh, from Jesus in that, in that encounter? And so today we're going to look at a, at a different meal. Uh, and it comes just a few days after Palm Sunday. Uh, now you may think, well, this would be a better sermon for next week because it's after Palm Sunday. Um, And I thought about that. I thought about even moving it, but I really do want you to wrestle this week with the passage and the story. I heard a a sermon uh, through a podcast this week, and uh, somebody was talking about uh, how they were in a group of people and how people were talking about, oh, when I read scripture, I just read it so that it comforts me. And their response back was, it shouldn't really just always comfort you. I mean, Scripture should confront you, uh, and so it should disrupt you. Uh, and so I want to encourage you to kind of think about, uh, as we approach Easter, about Jesus' time uh, as he moves into Jerusalem, because that's what Palm Sunday is representing. It's Jesus' triumphal entry into, I want to let you, I mean, let it disrupt you. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 22. We're going to kind of stay there, but that's a good place for you to kind of rest and read uh, this week, is to read the story of Luke chapter 22 as Jesus eats with his disciples. Um, they were on Palm Sunday, they were celebrating Jesus and they were crying Hosanna you know the story if you've been in church you know they were raving palm leaves because they were celebrating Jesus as he was going to raise an army and he was going to drive Romans out but that's not what happens go and read the story Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple and he preaches a message that literally angers the religious leaders and so what you see is Jesus literally disrupts everything on Palm Sunday And so we tend to think of it as the celebratory, which it is celebratory, but do you ever allow Palm Sunday to disrupt you? And so read this week, read the story and engage it as you look at Jesus around the table. So a few days after Palm Sunday experience, Jesus is with the disciples and they go into the upper room. And y'all know the story of the Last Supper. And so I want us to think a little bit about this meal that Luke records in Luke 22. So y'all read with me in verse 14. When the time came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles joined him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I won't eat it until it is fulfilled in God's kingdom. 
After taking a cup and giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on I won't drink from the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom has come. After taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, This cup is the, the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, as I said, Luke, Luke records a lot of the important experiences of Jesus around the table. Uh, it's interesting if you go and read other Gospels. So John, and we talked about this a couple of years ago when we looked at John's Gospel through Easter. Um, John, 25% of John's Gospel is at this meal. 25% of his entire Gospel is this encounter between Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they don't certainly give the emphasis that John does, but what they say is really important and it's critical to us as people who are trying to follow Jesus. And so we have to kind of break this down. And so I want us to go back to verse 7. If you've got your Bibles open, keep it open. Luke 22, verse 7. The day of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John with this task. Go and prepare for us to eat the Passover meal. So Luke makes sure that we know that this is a Passover meal. This is a meal, a time where the people of Israel celebrate the fact that they had been delivered from slavery out of Egypt by the hand of God, that God had delivered them. Now Luke expects the people who are hearing this to know a few things. And so I guess that part of that is Luke expects you to know certain things about this. One is he expects you to know that there was a, a lamb that was sacrificed and Luke expects you to know that they would have roasted that, they would have prepared it, that this would have been, there would have been a lot of things. If you've ever been a part of, a, of a, what we call the Passover Seder, if you've ever been a part of that, you know there's a lot of components and elements. All of these things would have been prepared in order for this meal to, to take place. Luke would have expected you to know that this wasn't sit down, eat your hamburger and fries and go on. That this was a meal where, I mean, there's a story that takes place. I mean, it takes hours sometimes. And Luke would have expected you to know that scriptures would have been read and psalms would have been sung and psalms would have been prayed. Luke would have expected you to know that all of these things occurred and we can see elements and pieces of this in the Gospels. Luke would have wanted you to know that 1,300 years ago or 1,300 years before the time of Christ that Israel had been enslaved, had been oppressed, and God had heard the cries of the people. And so as they were crying out to God, God was raising up Moses, and Moses was told to go to Pharaoh and command Pharaoh to let his people go. Luke would have known that you would have known that. And that even though Moses argued about it, he eventually did what God told him to do, and he went to Pharaoh and he said, God told me to tell you to let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, I don't even know your God, because that was a time when there were understandings of multiple gods. He said, I don't even know your God. I'm not going to let the slaves go free. I mean, that would disrupt all of the economic systems, all the political systems, all the power structures. I'm not going to let the slaves go free. And so God says, okay, 
well, I'm going to send plagues. Luke would have expected you to know that. And Luke would have expected you to know that those plagues got worse and worse with each one. And the, finally the 10th plague came and God said, okay, I'm going to send an angel through the town. And that angel of death is going to come through and kill every firstborn child. And so I want you to tell the people of Israel to slaughter a lamb and to take the blood and to put it on your doorpost so that when the angel of death passes over, the angel will see the blood on your doorpost and will pass over your house, will save you from experiencing the pain that everybody else is going to experience. Luke would have expected us to know this part of the story. And what's amazing to me is when you see this, it happens just like God said it would. He said to the Israelites, you need to be prepared. You need to slaughter a lamb and you need to eat it quickly. You need to eat the bread quickly. You can't even wait for it to, raise, to, be, to, to rise up. You need to pack your stuff and you need to be ready to go because when that door opens, you need to go. You need to be prepared. You need to do all of these things in order to be ready. And so from this point on, after it happens, God tells Moses that you need to have a meal every year and you need to remember. You need to remember this. I don't want you to forget. You were once slaves and I set you free. Folks, that's important. Luke would have expected you to know this. And so the Passover meal is designed in order to help you taste it and see it and feel it and hear it. To go back to that moment when they were around the table and they were drinking the cup and God says, drink this cup of promise because I will deliver you. They were, when they tasted the bitter herbs and it brought tears to their eyes, it would take them back to the pain of the people who had been enslaved and oppressed for so long. That meal around the table was meant to take those disciples back to the time that they were delivered, to feel it and to experience it. And the disciples had no idea that Jesus was fixing to be arrested and eventually crucified. And Jesus is saying to them, and I think that it was important for us to hear that, Jesus is saying to them, look, this has been your defining story. All along, this has been your defining story. And this meal was designed to take you back to that. Now, I'm going to disrupt it. Because I'm fixing to suffer. I'm fixing to be crucified. I become your defining story and disrupts everything about that event. Listen again to what Luke says in verse 17 and 18. After taking a cup and giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on, I won't drink from the, vine, the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom has come. And then in verse 20, in the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, this cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. And then between the two cups, the bread, in verse 19, after taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you're receiving communion, when you receive communion, please don't think of this as a formal 
liturgy that you just, it's a ritual that you go through. We're supposed to go back to that moment. We're supposed to go back to the time where Jesus was carrying his cross through the town for me and for you. We're supposed to go back to that moment when Jesus breathes his last breath and says, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're supposed to go back to that moment on Saturday when the tomb is still covered up and nobody really understands what's going on and everybody's asking questions, I don't understand it. We're also supposed to go back to Sunday morning when the tomb is rolled away, when the stone's rolled away and the tomb's empty and everybody realizes Jesus has been raised from the dead. All of that is seen in this and experienced in this. That's what Holy Communion is about. We become the disciples and Jesus is giving us a gift this is the body, this is the blood of Christ. I am the living bread, and it's not just when I receive communion that I experience the living bread, it's all the time that I get to experience the life-giving bread of Jesus Christ. All of that we see in this, and it points me to the cross, and I realize that Jesus suffered and died for me. Part of the liturgy that we say is we literally say it during communion, you hear it when we work through the formal liturgy of it, is that you saved us from slavery to sin and death. And you brought new life, a new covenant by water and the Spirit. All of that as we get to celebrate and break bread together. I love this story. It's interesting that as Jesus is teaching this, as Jesus is literally bearing his soul and talking about the fact that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, do you know what the disciples are doing? Read it this week. The disciples are arguing about which ones of them are strongest, which one of them are the greatest, and which one of them get to sit at the, at the right hand of Jesus in this new kingdom. Can you imagine how Jesus felt when he had poured out this and he hears them arguing about which one of them is the greatest? I wonder what he thinks about us. We celebrate this gift that God gives us. And we'll sit around and bicker over which one's better, a hymn or a modern song. I mean, I literally, that's, I get emails why don't you sing more hymns? Why don't you sing more modern songs? What do you think he thinks when we celebrate communion and we fight, bicker, whatever you want to say? We, we fight over who uses what space. I don't think the disciples really are any different than what we saw last week when the Pharisees are trying to bicker over who gets to sit in the seat of honor. I wonder if we are. Jesus, Jesus responds to that attitude. Look at what it says in verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles rule over their subject and those in authority over them are called friends of the people. But that's not the way it will be with you. Instead, the greatest among you must become like a person of lower status and the leader like a servant. 
Jesus has modeled this over and over again. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. It means to make yourself a servant. Greatness, listen to me, greatness in the kingdom of God is servanthood. Greatness is servanthood. I think about the adversity that we have faced in the last year as a, as a church, as a community, sometimes as families. I think about the struggles that we've gone through to be away from each other. And I want you to really, I mean, this is the part of disrupting yourself is I want you to think about what have you done during that year? Have you made it about yourself? Or have you made it about serving other people? And I want y'all to hear this, especially those who are on. This has nothing to do with whether you're able to leave your house or not. It has nothing to do with whether you're able to come outside. Because let's acknowledge there are some people that going outside is a life or death situation. And I'm blessed that that's not the condition that I'm in. But for those who you are, I understand why you don't. But you know what's been beautiful is when we did the, um, the angel tree, it was so interesting to watch people drop by cards. Some of you who literally cannot leave your house would go and get cards just to make sure that people had Christmas. That servanthood, servanthood is greatness in God's kingdom. I had somebody call me and left me a message on Friday. I won't say who it was. They know who they are. They are probably in the demographic that would be the most susceptible. And their message was, look, I've been using my time while I'm at home to call people and check on them. And I found out that somebody in our church has cancer. And they want you to, they want the church to pray for them. That they've been going through chemotherapy. We had no idea. They've been going through chemotherapy and they got a procedure coming up. And they want you and the church to be in prayer for them. And so we're going to stop right now. We're going to pray because y'all don't know this, but Linda Reagan has cancer. And she's asking for you, the church, to pray. So let's pray. Almighty God, we come in this moment and we lift Linda up. And she just, she represents so many that we could lift up. But she's asked for the church to pray. God, we pray for your healing Holy Spirit to be upon her. Lord, in this moment, wrap your arms around her to, so she can feel tight your love. Help her to feel the shelter of who you are. Help her to be able to trust in your promise that you are a God who never leaves her, never forsakes her. Help her to be able to claim in the name of Jesus Christ victory. And because you say it, we believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Greatness in the kingdom of God is servanthood. I think about the people who have gone into hospitals and doctor's offices. Some of them are people in our church. Some of us that are on the Wednesday morning uh, prayer uh, study, we, we have somebody that has joined us in that and we get to hear her story. 
and the stress and the overwhelming, they are creating a place so that people like Linda who are able to go through chemotherapy and they're able to do things have nothing to do with COVID. I think about the people that go into the hospitals that create a place that was able to be there for my mom when she got sick. And so many of you, that's your story as well. It's putting yourself, I mean, putting somebody else ahead of yourself. It's greatness in the kingdom of God. I look out every week, except last week. I look out every week and I see your faces and you're masked up. And I know you don't want to wear a mask, but you do it. Greatness is servanthood. It's putting somebody ahead of yourself. That's what God says in the kingdom of God. That's, it's calling on people. It's checking. It's, it's, it's sending notes. All of those are examples of love, God says. This past week, I got to spend the whole week in quarantine. Yay. Uh, and I got to come in here Saturday morning. And I came in here yesterday, and Ollie was doing part of the uh, uh, work day and so many of y'all were out there and she came walking through here and we talked a little bit about let me tell y'all this is love right there that's love you're willing to go into your closet amen that is love in the in the kingdom of god that's what greatness is what what does jesus think when we receive communion, what does he think about our attitude and our actions? One final thing that I want to bring up in this pet text is look at verse 21. But look, as he sits around the table, but look, my betrayer is with me. His hand is on this table. This is after Jesus has prayed for the bread and the wine. Judas has already sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. It's just waiting for the time to be arranged. And Jesus still serves him bread and wine. In a different gospel, Jesus says to the people at the table, all of you are going to desert me. And as you read this story this week, Peter's response is, I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, you're not even going to make it through the night before you betray me. I thought about this this week. If you read Luke, you watch Jesus he breaks bread, he fellowships with people that you and I probably wouldn't. If you read the story, you probably wouldn't be around the table. The bread and the juice is available to anyone. It doesn't make a difference if you have all the answers. It doesn't make a difference how bad you've messed up. It doesn't make a difference how far that you have fall, ran from God. He wants you. That's what you see. That's what this table represents is that he wants you. I'm always amazed when somebody says, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to receive communion. This is God's gift for you. And that, what Jesus is saying is for all of you who don't feel worthy, for all of you who don't feel like you've, or, or feel like you've failed God, for all of you who question whether you deserve it, God says, I will love you 
back into the kingdom of God. That's what's in this cup and in this juice. If you look at the Gospels, it's full of people who constantly are worried about whether they're worthy. God says you are. That's what it's meant to show. That's what we experience as we break bread at Jesus' table. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. Despite the fact that we fail, despite the fact that we run from you, that we, like Moses, we come up with excuses over and over again. Help us, God, to, to accept your love. And help us not to, to fight about which of us is greater. Help us just to acknowledge that you are the greatest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.